Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Morning. Fast going well? I saw all those hands go up last week, so just want to make sure I hold you accountable. Did the fast go well? Good, okay. Well, please begin by opening your Bibles to Acts 10 and jump ahead to verse 34, and you can read along with me. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel... Preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen? I want to begin again with Acts 1.8. I've brought it up, I think, every time I've preached through this Acts series. I've been enjoying going through this rich um, portion of God's word. Acts 1.8, hopefully you have it memorized by now. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we've been walking through the book of Acts, we've been seeing that programmatic outline of gospel witness spread out from a city, Jerusalem. And if you're not from Jerusalem, it's a geographically insignificant city to those who live outside the city at that time. Spreading across various hurdles, various barriers as the word of God goes out. In the first six or so chapters of this book, we're focused on the ministry that happens in Jerusalem and Judea. And then over the course of the last few chapters, Luke has spent time in various stories, various portions of his narrative, as boundaries are crossed, which were uncomfortable and difficult for many of those living at the time that people are doing ministry in the early church. We see the boundary between Jerusalem and Judea and Judea and Samaria. And this week, this morning, we have the boundary between Samaria and the ends of the earth. The gospel goes out powerfully and it crushes hurdles that people really didn't understand how it might get past. But the Spirit of God is powerful and he sends his people out. And we get four stories that process us through these various hurdles. The first one was the story of Stephen. Then we hear the story of Philip. Then we hear the story of Paul. And then we hear the story that we have this weekend, that of Cornelius. And in each of these stories, we see God use his people powerfully to make his name known amongst the Jews and amongst those who were not Jewish. 
That's what's happening. And when we get to the story of Cornelius, something happens in the narrative that hasn't yet happened. Luke slows down a lot. The pacing really, really, really slows down. He spends time um, in details. He dwells with each character. He repeats himself because this moment in Scripture is really, really important. It's the line in between those who are formerly always part of the people of God and those whom people might not have expected would be included in God's kingdom. In fact, this is the moment where the door opens for the vast majority of us who are here today. What happens is Peter, a Jewish man, a man who spent his entire life in the area around Jerusalem, a man who spent three years with Jesus, a man who grew up knowing Jewish scripture and practicing Jewish tradition, meets in the house of a Roman centurion. And there's distance between these two figures. And we see the gospel preached from a Jewish man to a man who, although he has some sympathies towards Judaism, is not Jewish in any sense of the word. Now, if you've been going to Hope Chapel for a long time, you're aware that we have always preached passage by passage. That has been the standard by which we do preaching. We do that for a number of reasons. One of the reasons we do that, and perhaps the most important reason, is we believe that the people of God are transformed by the Spirit of God using the Word of God. We want to forefront the biblical text itself. So that's why we allow Scripture to like sort of model or uh, sorry, form our teaching as opposed to our teaching form which Scriptures we choose. Now we've come to this passage today that's a long one. And there's a lot of detail. It's rich. A lot of things are happening. It's actually um, maybe from 10.1, you could say all the way up to 11.18. And instead of dividing it in half, What I want to do is focus on a small section of it and zoom in, and then we'll zoom out next week and we'll talk about conversion in general. Now, there are six stages, six six sections of this particular passage. The first stage in verses one through eight, we read about an angel's visit to Cornelius, and in stage two, we read about Peter's vision. In stage three, Cornelius' messengers reach Peter. In stage four, Cornelius and Peter meet for the first time. In stage five, Peter preaches the gospel. And in stage six, the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And in your notes, you'll see that stage five is the one that's bolded. And that is what we're going to spend our time on this morning. There's a few reasons for that. The first reason is this. Everything else that happens in this passage, all the other things we can learn, all the other theological truths, they are rooted and built on the gospel that Peter preaches to Cornelius. I want us as a congregation to hold the gospel high and focus on that first. The other reason is this is Peter's last sermon. We've watched him preach in a variety of contexts as we walk through the book of Acts, and now he is about to leave Acts as one of the main characters. He's going to appear a few more times, we're going to see a few more episodes, but we're never going to see him preach in great detail again. And in this passage, I believe we see one of the best, one of the richest, one of the most nuanced descriptions of the gospel in the entire Bible, the moment where the gospel is heard by a Gentile and received for the first time. That's why we're focusing on this section first. He begins in verses 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And some of us read this passage and we immediately take the wrong thing away. 
Some of us read this passage and we come to the conclusion that anyone, as long as they act righteously, could be counted among those who are innocent on judgment day. The idea of universalism is sometimes assumed in this passage, that anyone who does good things in general, who generally wants to be a good person, that person is going to get into heaven. But that is not what this passage teaches. It is not teaching that your own righteousness or your own desire to be like a good person will result in you being innocent on judgment day. That's not what it teaches. Peter uses the term partiality. And this word has a lot to do with the Jewish and the Gentile relationship, and we're going to get more into that next week. Essentially what Peter is saying is, formerly I thought only certain people could be counted among the number who would be part of God's kingdom. But now I realize that God does not show partiality. Anyone may be someone whom will be in the kingdom at the end. He's saying there's no partiality. Ethnic background or socioeconomic class does not dictate whether or not you can receive the invitation of salvation. It is not salvation that's universal. It is the invitation to receive the peace that is made by God. That's what Peter is addressing here. And we know that because he doesn't just stop talking. If Peter had said to Cornelius, who we've already read as a generally stand-up guy, hey, listen, anyone who does right is acceptable to God, so we're done here. Good job, Cornelius. And then Peter can go on to whatever else he wants to do. He doesn't do that. He continues with a deep and abiding and rich description of the gospel itself. He continues in verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Amen? He is Lord of all. This is the summary of the summary. Although Peter could talk for a long time about the gospel, he offers a summary here. And in verse 36, he offers a summary of the summary. If you're ever writing essays in school, it's good to do that. Summarize what you're about to say. Peter does that here in verse 36. And notice what he does next. We can read this in verse 37. We read how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He continues. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The first thing that Peter focuses on is that Jesus Christ is the peacemaker. Jesus Christ is the peacemaker. And when he addresses this point, the first thing he turns to is the historical narrative of Jesus' life. He says to Cornelius, you've probably heard about this specific guy in this specific place. He turns to what Jesus actually did. Listen, it has always been an essential component of Christianity that Jesus actually lived, that he actually had a powerful ministry, that he actually was crucified, and that he was actually raised from the dead. The problem today is there are many people, many, many, many people who assume that it is enough to think that Jesus is a good moral teacher or a good philosopher, but he died and he's dead and the only thing that lived on was his teaching. And people who say these sorts of things will go further. They'll say, and really that's the point. The point is we just need to love each other the way that Jesus commanded that we love each other and we should love each other the way that Jesus commanded we love each other. However, the notion 
that Jesus' ministry, his death and his resurrection, that he actually lived, that he actually did these things, would have been completely foreign to the earliest believers. Their hope, our hope, is built on the historical fact of Jesus' life. It matters. It matters. It has always mattered. Every time the apostles return to a description of Jesus, they don't say things like, he was such a great teacher, let me tell you all the things he taught me. That matters. First and foremost, they say, let me show you what Jesus actually achieved in his ministry. Any version of Christianity that says all that matters is Jesus' teaching. It doesn't matter whether he lived and did those sorts of things. It doesn't matter whether he died and rose again. Is a weak and worthless faith. This is essential to what we believe. Our hope is built on the fact that Jesus actually lived, that he actually died, and that he was actually raised. It has always been the hope. Listen to one of the earliest Christian texts ever written by by the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says this, if your hope is resurrection, if your hope is resurrection, it is necessary that Jesus has already been raised. If that wasn't the case, we should just pack up and go home. It mattered. It has always mattered. And when Peter meets Cornelius in a house, he doesn't just talk about the teachings of Christ. He focuses and forefronts the ministry and the mission of Jesus. He says, this specific guy who lived at this specific time was called by God to do these specific things that actually meant something. It wasn't just teaching. It was a mission. That's how he begins And as he walks through the life of Christ and describes the things that he achieved, he describes him in a number of other ways. He provides various roles that Christ filled. And the first one I think he shows us is that Christ was the anointed conqueror. That Christ was the anointed conqueror. We can read this in verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. When Luke uses these words, he's hearkening back to what the prophet Isaiah told us about the anointed one of God. And we can read this here in 61.1 of the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening up of the prison to those who are bound. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he encounters a world that is in the grips of Satan and his demons. That's what happens. He shows up and immediately he's confronted by demonic forces. Now today, we have two kind of extremes we fall into. Some of us are incredibly concerned with demonic forces, maybe overly concerned. And some of us struggle to believe that demons are real at all. You guys following me? We don't always know how to process statements about demons in the New Testament. Like Paul says that he wants to visit a particular city and he says in one of his letters that Satan stopped him. And you read that and you're like, what? Like Satan stopped you? I've had students say, I was late to class. I really wanted to show up on time, but Satan stopped me. I don't ever want to hear that excuse, guys. Demons are real, but Jesus is the anointed conqueror. He shows up on the scene. Right away, we read this in Mark's gospel. He's in the synagogue. He's preaching with authority, not as one of the scribes. People are blown away by the things that he has to say. They can barely contain themselves. He's teaching in this way they've never experienced before. And right then, a demon-possessed man walks into the synagogue. And everyone's like, shh, quiet, let's see what Jesus does, right? The demon-possessed walks in. He sees Jesus. And in Mark 1.24, we read him say this to Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon walks in and he uses these pronouns. We're going to talk about pronouns for a second. Pronouns are words we use in the place of nouns. <laughs> he, she, him. And in this case, we see two types of pronouns. We see plural ones, us, and we see singular ones, I, what happens is the demon walks in to see Jesus. This is the first time we see a demonic encounter in the New Testament or in the book of Mark. And he says to Jesus, what do you have to do with us? All of us. All of the demonic forces. All of those who oppress God. And his demon says to Jesus, have you come to destroy us? And Jesus says, yes. Yes, I have. And he casts him out. And the ministry of Jesus is filled with these encounters where he runs into demons and they're afraid of him and they fall to the ground and cast them out left and right and it grows and grows and it's more and more powerful. People don't know what to do with the fact that Jesus is casting out demons. He has power over him. They're over them. They're afraid of him. And then we get to Mark 5 and we see the demon-possessed man at Gennesaret, this seaside area. This particular demon-possessed man is strong and he's terrifying. He's put in chains and he breaks the chains. He lives out by the tombs. His situation could not be any more pitiful. And then he encounters Jesus and the demon says to him again, do not harm us. Jesus says, what's your name? And the man says, legion, for we are many. And with as much ease as he casts out a single demon, Jesus casts out all thousand. We read these passages, and they're powerful, and they matter. And we see Jesus go around as the anointed conqueror with power over demonic forces, and that is awesome. We should believe those things. We should believe that Jesus is powerful. We should believe that Jesus is the conqueror. We should see Jesus arrive at this situation and free this man who is oppressed by demons, this man who is held captive. But... We cannot miss the point. How does Jesus really liberate this man who is in captivity? By changing places with him later. Jesus himself becomes captive. He goes to the cross. 
This is what Peter turns to next. This is the real point of his mission. Peter says this in his sermon. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. The story of Jesus' life takes what appears by those on the outside to be a sharp right turn. He's been walking around and casting out demons and functioning in a powerful ministry. And then we read that he goes to the cross. Now remember, Peter is talking to a Roman centurion. This guy's probably nailed people to crosses. He knows what crucifixion is. He's aware of these sorts of things. You crucify insurrectionists. You crucify rebels. You crucify violent offenders. You crucify people who are guilty. Peter adds more nuance to that. He uses the word tree instead of cross. Now, Cornelius is somewhat familiar with Old Testament passages. You can read at the beginning of this chapter in chapter 10 that he knows some things about Judaism, but if he knows enough, he may pick up on the fact that Peter, as he has done before, is referring to a passage in Deuteronomy. We read it here. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Peter is referring to this fact. He is implying this fact. He's draping over the crucifixion of Jesus, the idea that Jesus bore a curse. That at the cross, Jesus was cursed. And we know this, Jesus was cursed in our place. That's what Peter is communicating when he uses the word tree instead of cross. But we know this, the story doesn't end there. The story does not end, he continues. Peter says this, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. As Peter goes through the ministry of Jesus Christ, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he goes at a fast pace and he arrives here at the resurrection of Jesus and notice the words he uses, he says, they killed him, but God raised him. They killed him, but God raised him. The power of God could not be overcome by any evil intent of humankind. They killed him, but God raised him. And then he says, and we saw him, Cornelius. We saw him. Peter's one of the guys that saw him. We saw him, Cornelius. We saw him raised. Not in this non-physical sense, not in the spiritual sense. We actually saw him. He adds another detail. We ate and we drank with him. And we read that and we're like, those seem like kind of weird things to address. Like we played boggle, we went on long walks. Here's the reason he says ate and drank. It has been a misconception amongst Christians for a long time that the resurrection of Jesus was just a spiritual one. That it was maybe a hallucination or a ghostly visitation. Cornelius is a Roman citizen who would have been a pagan in the past, was familiar with the idea of ghosts visiting those whom had witnessed their deaths. But Peter's saying, no, Cornelius, we saw him. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a hallucination. He wasn't just in our brains. He was in the room with them. We saw him eat. We saw him drink. My buddy Thomas touched his wounds. He was there. He was actually there. And Cornelius, because of that fact... Because of that fact, you have a decision to make. You have a decision to make. This man 
was alive and then he was dead and then he was alive again because although they killed him, God raised him. This is where Peter arrives, I believe, at the strongest tension in this text. Cornelius, a Roman citizen who has never met Jesus, who did not grow up Jewish, who did not probably grow up in Palestine, who is only somewhat familiar with Jewish law and Jewish customs, he now has to deal with the fact that there was a man whom his buddies killed that God has raised. He's aware of the fact that Peter is saying Jesus is the peacemaker and the question that Cornelius must have, the question that we must have is what does Jesus have to do with us? When Peter gives this sermon, he's really answering two questions. Who is Jesus? And why does he matter? Well, he's just told us who he is. He's the peacemaker. He's the one anointed by God. He's the one who was crucified. He was the one who was raised. And now he's going to begin to address the second one. He's going to begin to address the fact that Jesus is not just the peacemaker. Jesus is Lord. He's already said it at the beginning of his sermon. Almost couldn't contain himself. He like sort of didn't sort of bury the lead. He says Jesus is the peacemaker and he is Lord of all. Why does Jesus matter to us? Well, one, because he is the peacemaker. Two, because he is the Lord of all. Read in verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. One of the problems we have today in modern theology and has occasionally been a problem in the past is the assumption that Jesus could be our savior but he doesn't need to be our Lord. We might call this the gospel of extreme liberty. It's fine, yeah, Jesus, he did some great stuff and I'm glad that he died on the cross for my sins, but what I would like to do is whatever I want for the rest of my life. He's my savior, but he's not my Lord. This is a very weak, thin, and brittle view of Christianity. It's like hellfire insurance. It's like, I'm glad that Jesus has got my back, but I'd like him to stay in his corner. Jesus cannot be your savior and not also your Lord. That is not an option for you. Jesus can only be your savior if he is also your Lord. Now listen to whom Peter is talking to. He's talking to this man named Cornelius who's a centurion. He's a centurion in the Roman army. He's worked his way up in the military class. He may have began as a slave who earned his freedom and over the course of his life has been raised to the level of a centurion. He's in charge of 100 men. He's good at his job. He's been doing it for a while and probably for most of his career and maybe much of his life, he has served another Lord, the man called Caesar. Have we heard of Caesar? There's lots of Caesars. Little Caesars? Caesar salad? The Roman Empire was enormous, like grippingly, shockingly enormous. There had not been really an empire in the West that had had this much control and this much brutality. 
I've been to Roman ruins. Anyone been to see Roman ruins? They're kind of like amazing, right? I've been to the Colosseum and you walk around. It's this enormous building. You're wondering how it could have even been built back at that time. I've been to ruins as far away as England, far away from the center of Rome, where you still have these enormous buildings that are part of the Roman Empire. You can see how far the military arm of the Roman Empire extended. Rome was enormous. It was powerful. And the Lord of Rome, according to Cornelius, was Caesar. Beyond that, Cornelius had spent his life playing a role in extending the rule of this Lord. His presence, his presence around Israel is evidence of this. And Peter is saying this, I know, I know, your whole life, your whole life, you have served Caesar. I know that your soldiers have carried Caesar's standard as you've gone to war. I know that Caesar has paid you in coins that bear his image. I know that Caesar as Lord feels tangible to you. I know that on a daily basis, it's been easy to recognize Caesar as Lord. But I'm telling you today, wrong Lord. That is what Peter is communicating to Cornelius. He's saying it doesn't matter how tangible, how real, how daily this other Lord feels to you. Wrong Lord. There was a mantra in early Christianity, something that was said on a regular basis, and it was something like, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, which is a powerful, subversive thing to say in territory that presumably belonged to Caesar. Here's the thing, though, about going to see Roman ruins. They're ruins. They're faded and muted. They're broken. They are vestiges of a time where there's a man who presumed to be God and turned out to be wrong. Caesar's dead is the point. The Roman Empire no longer exists. Every single empire that's ever had any measure of power is gone. But then we jump back to the story of Stephen, who's at the temple on trial, and as he is dying, he looks up into heaven, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Peter is saying this, I know that it feels like Caesar has so much power, so much power that he's never going to die. He's never going to end. I'm telling you, you're wrong. I'm telling you, you're wrong. There is one Lord of all. One. And he's at the right hand of the Father. There's some additional points to this. He talks about Jesus specifically as a judge. We can read this. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Peter uses this phrase here, the living and the dead. We call this a merism. Basically, it's two things that when you add them together mean everything. <laughs> Everyone is either alive or dead. Jesus is going to be the judge of all of them. And I think in many ways he's referring, to back, referring back to a passage in the book of Daniel. It's about the Son of Man, Jesus' own self-designation for himself, what Jesus most often called himself as we read in the Gospels. And now we know this passage is about Jesus. We read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. St. Cornelius, Jesus is Lord of all. He is also judge of all, and the dominion that he possesses that has been given to him will never pass away. Everything is under the rule of this one figure. Jesus is Lord of all, and by extension, Jesus is judge of all. This is a challenge to Cornelius. It's a challenge to us. Can you imagine Cornelius? This does not sound like good news. He's like, well, my buddy's killed this guy, and now he's alive again, and he's been exalted to the position of judge of everyone. How could I possibly, how could I possibly be found innocent by this judge? I'm with the group of guys that nailed him there. Peter doesn't stop. He continues. Because Jesus is not just the judge. Jesus is the one who forgives. We read this as we continue. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Turns out that the one who is judge of all is also the one who made forgiveness possible. Peter's saying to Cornelius, listen, you guys nailed him to the cross, but he stayed there so that men like you might find peace. Humankind has always been at war with God. Humankind has always been at war with God. One of the ways we know this is when God became man, we were so at war with him that we killed him. But in that death, God made possible peace. Through the blood of his son, God made peace possible. And now there's no partiality. That peace is offered to all who will call on the name of Jesus the Lord of all. That's what he's saying to Cornelius. Cornelius, who was with the Romans who executed Jesus, now can find peace in the very one whom he executed. He's saying to Cornelius, Caesar can't help you. Wrong, Lord. Today, we don't worship Caesar. We don't. We have other lords that we've put in place of Jesus as Lord. Money or sex, or power. For many of us who are sitting here today, I think the idea of financial security has become our Lord. Should we be wise with our money? Yes. Is that what all the resources in our life should be directed to? Should we worship financial security? No. Peter says to Cornelius, abandon the false Lord. Abandon the false Lord. We know now that that Lord is dead and his empire is in ruins, Cornelius didn't know that at the time. Peter is saying to us, abandon your false lords because they will abandon you. There is only one Lord of all, the name through whom we can find forgiveness of sins. What's that name? 
abandon false lords, amen? Jesus is the peacemaker. Jesus is Lord of all. We can read this in Philippians 2. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what Peter is saying to Cornelius. Here's what Peter is saying to us. We can have Jesus as our deliverer, or we can have him as our judge. Those are the only two options. And now we can read this verse in light of that. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Either in joyful reverence or under the weight of judgment. Abandon false lords. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you did and your son on Jesus through his ministry and at the cross, we're thankful that you raised him on the third day. We thank you that although while we were still enemies, you sent your son to die for us, that you are the peacemaker, that the righteousness that can belong to us is not our own righteousness, but the righteousness that Jesus expressed in his ministry. I want to offer an opportunity uh, to respond in repentance. For some of you, Jesus isn't even your savior. And if that's you, and maybe for the first time you realize you need Jesus as your savior, I'm going to give you a moment to raise your hand. But wait, I think more of us here believe that Jesus is our savior, but we've come to realize that he is not our Lord. But there's something else reigning. There's some other thing that we think keeps us safe. There's some other thing that we offer worship to that is a false Lord. If that's you, while everyone else's head is bowed, I want to give you an opportunity to respond by raising your hand right now. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see you guys. I see you over there. I see you over there on the left. I see you over in the center. Pray this with me. Father, we're thankful for the work you did in Jesus. Empower us to worship and serve and be obedient to the only Lord of all. Make this our greatest joy and delight and treasure to serve the one who belongs on the throne. Empower us in small and large decisions to obey and to serve that Lord. Probably sings in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.